Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Freddie Kramer started skating at four years old and ended up being one of the most sought-out hockey prospects in the world. He was taken in the seventh round of the NHL draft by the Montreal Canadiens, but his pro career didn't last very long. His battles with addiction and anxiety did, though. Then a failed suicide attempt in 2011 was followed by the courage to change and what's now more than 10 years of sobriety. Brady is a living, breathing example of how recovery can work if you're willing to change and put in the work yourself. Lace up your skates. But first, Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Hello. Brady. Pete, how are you? <laughs> What's up, man? How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. I am. Uh, I'm now actually now working at uh, Upland Country Day School and down in Kennett Square. And um, I've got about a 40 minute commute each day back to Berwyn. So uh, I'm actually just getting off the payola exit. Okay. Well, let's get in, let's get into your story. I want to start off. You mentioned you you graduated. Now you and I are both from the Philly area. You graduated Haverford School in 1991. That's a big date for you. I think you were drafted into the NHL in what 1990. You know, Pete, I was, and and it's funny that this goes this way. So in 1991, I was actually drafted. Okay, I was drafted out of high school. So it's like pro, it's like pro baseball almost. Yes. So they keep your rights, and you don't, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to sign right away, and they don't really expect you to sign right away unless you're like a one or two rounder. Um, I was a seventh rounder, so I was a project. But it's funny, as things would have it, I was at rehab with my brother, visiting my brother in rehab. Um, I wasn't personally in rehab, but he was the day I got drafted, and I didn't even know it. Like I, I, So I didn't know I got drafted. I had just gone up to visit him, and when we got back, um, I went out to eat. I actually went to the old alligators, if you remember that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I called home. And back then, you know, there wasn't the internet or this and that. And my parents had called the inquire and they said, yep, you got drafted seventh round by Montreal. And, and I was ecstatic, but you know, I wasn't even around to hear it because as you know, a little foreshadowing, I was out visiting a sibling in rehab. Is it, a, obviously, I mean, I'm going to ask a question. I think you just answered. It's in your family? Well, you know, and that's the funny thing. And, and you know, Pete, I'm pretty much an open book on this because, you know, this, you know, this disease this and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. So I, I will tell you this. My brother is actually adopted. So he is not, um, you know, a gene um, but at the same point, you know, my sister has struggled with addiction. I have, 
but then, you know, it, it's a funny foe. Like I have, um, you know, my father and my mother and my other sister, they don't struggle at all with it. So, you know, it, probably back a ways, there's some more addiction issues. So I, I'm sure there is, but, um, you know, for me, it was, it, you know, this kind of blindsided me as I'll, you know, kind of go on to tell you a little bit more. Jump forward with me. What, what is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is August 30th, 2011. And now we're going to get in the time machine again. What was your first memory of getting that substance in your body? Well, you know, it's funny because I'm the youngest of six children, Pete. And I um, would watch my brothers and sisters go out and do their thing. And, you know, as the youngest, I think you always want to create your own trail, your own mark. And I wanted to do nothing of what they did. So I frowned upon drinking like, you know, like it was the scarlet letter. I mean, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then I remember, and, and I don't know where you grew up, Pete, but like I grew up on the main line. And for those of your listeners that don't know main line or Delco, I got hanging around with some Delaware County folks and they introduced me to my first keg party. The blue, co- the blue collar guys. Absolutely. And, and you know what, that's where, you know, again, I live two worlds, Pete. I, um, I lived the mainline world where I went to the Haverford school and then I lived the Delaware County world where I skated and played hockey and had all my friends from the stadium. I was going to ask you yeah. that the mainline for folks who don't know, it's a kind of an, an, an elitish upper crusty type deal. And then there's a blue collar aspect of Delaware County where that's where you can find some toughness. And, and I wondered how you got started playing hockey. I'm guessing you started skating long before you took your first drink. I, I did. I actually started skating when I was four. And um, <clears throat> I skated because my brother skated. Um, my brother got involved in hockey because, you know, my parents were big fans of the Broad Street Bullies, 73 and 74 Stanley Cup. Philadelphia you know, Flyers. And, um, yes, sir. And, um, you know, I just kind of followed suit. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, my mom is from Chester, which if, you know, for some of your listeners don't know, it's kind of a, you know, gritty area. My dad's from the city of Philadelphia, but I was raised in, you know, the suburban, you know, country club area of the main line. But yet all my friends were Delaware County friends where there's the more blue collar, rugged, tough, people proud it's like texas you know people who are from delaware county are proud to be from delaware county hey, absolutely um, and, you know so i never felt like i fit in pete like i i felt like you know here i am at school driving the chevy nova and all my buddies are driving porsches while you know in delaware county i'm the rich kid who you know whose dad you know is an executive and wears a suit to work so you know the long and short of it is my first drink I had my first experience with drinking was buying a red solo cup at a keg party with a bunch of my, um, Haverford high friends, <laughs> Delaware County friends. And I didn't even use it. I just held on to it because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And, um, you know, eventually through osmosis, I tried that first drink and then I was off to the races. What did alcohol do for you? Gosh, um, you know, it is funny because I did have a chance to listen to some of um, your other podcasts, 
and I was discussing it with my wife and, you know, I, I think as an athlete, we're adrenaline junkies, Pete. And, you know, with that, you're constantly looking for that next exciting experience, whether it be the adulation of the crowd or, you know, people asking you for your autograph and whatever it is. And alcohol took the pressure off. My mind didn't have to race. Um, I didn't have to worry what anyone else thought about me. I didn't have to compete against anyone. Um, I, I just could go into that numb zone as most alcoholics know that, that just, you know, the ease and comfort of the first drink that as the big book talks about being such a great athlete, was there a lot of pressure on you, uh, from, from the outside or was there pressure that you put on yourself through the alcoholism? Looking back on it, and this is where, you know, rein me in whenever you want to keep, but like, I'm the youngest, like I said, of six children. Two of my parents' children died at a young age of two and three. And that was, you know, they were the oldest. And I kind of, I, I really do believe going forward in life, I felt like I was maybe that replacement. You know, I was supposed to be this perfect child. You know, my mom always told me, like, I was the one that could say the right thing to make her feel good when she was going through a depression, which I had. Um, and then, you know, you mix that with the Haverford School, which, you know, elite prep school, big-time athletics, big-time academics. And then, you know, you shine in sports, and all of a sudden you realize, like, and, and again, for me, it's two male-dominated areas. I'm at an all-boys school from kindergarten, age 5 to age 17, and then I'm in a boys' locker room, and then I'm youngest of six where I'm fighting for everything I can get, and, you know, there was just no room for error. And mom's, no calling, you error. The, mom's calling you the golden child. That's a kind of a pressure cooker. 100%. Yet, you know, I, I, I do look back on it and, you know, I quit hockey twice before my career ended to play tennis, which actually uh, some would argue I was better at. Um, I, I <laughs> actually, because, you know, to, but, you know, tennis didn't have that masculine, you know, edge to it. So I never thought I was, it was tough enough for me to play. So I always found my way back to hockey. But, yeah, you know, my parents actually, they didn't put the pressure on me to succeed. They want, you know, as an athletic director and someone that works in education, I know helicopter parents. I know parents that, you know, I was laughing today, you know, any, if I've had 200 parents in my office, 199 of them start off with, I'm not the type of parent that's going to come in and talk to the coach. And it's like, you just became that guy. <laughs> so I didn't feel Pete like I had that kind of pressure, but looking back on it, you know, I, I know that like my dad doesn't introduce me as Brady Kramer, the guy with 10 years of sobriety. He, uh, he introduces me as Brady Kramer, the ex pro hockey player. And you know, I'm 47 now, like I'm prouder of my 10 years of sobriety than anything I ever did athletically. Yeah, it's it really is, and that's and that's kind of the comfort in your own skin. At least for me, that's kind of what's come of that. I was talking to a buddy about it today. 
all of a sudden things start to change in your life. And I mean, the gifts of sobriety start coming in and there really is, there really is such a pride, such a quiet confidence that I've found, um, through, like you said, through the program and through AA and, and through sobriety, it's pretty, it's pretty unbelievable. It's, it, I get everything that I got out of alcohol uh, and drugs out of, out of, out of, out of recovery. And I never thought, yeah. I never, and, and I'm proud of that. That's a self-esteem. Bill. Absolutely. Well, and Pete, like I tell, and, and you know, and it's like, it's, you know, for me, again, for any of your listeners that, you know, don't know the program, you know, it's God, it's a higher power, whatever you choose it to be. But for me, like the message is so crystal clear that like Brady, you had to go through this in order to receive the gifts that I'm giving you now. And when I talk to these young kids about alcohol and alcoholism and my personal story, Pete, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, they are listening to every word. And that gift is my game seven winning goal. Like, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like, I have some regrets that I didn't get to play in an NHL game and you know, I didn't have the fame and fortune that, you know, I thought I was entitled to, but what I've received from Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery in general is a gift that I don't deserve, but am trying to make the most of every day. Let's go back and talk about yeah. how, how you got here. In high school, you're excelling on the ice. You're starting to drink. When does when the drinking really pick up? So... I'll preface it by saying I didn't realize I was an alcoholic until about a year and a half into Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I knew I was a heavy drinker. I knew alcoholic alcohol did not help my cause. But at the end of the day, I've suffered from anxiety and depression since I was in fifth grade. And, you know, as we know, Pete, like alcohol is the solution. It's not the problem. I didn't realize that. So, you know, in high school, I start drinking, but you know what? I, I, I'm so concerned with this perfectionism, this never failing, this never letting anyone beat you, that, you know, I pick my spots very carefully when I drink alcohol. So, you know, where a lot of my friends are at keg parties on Friday nights, and Saturday nights, I'm with mom up in, you know, Western Ontario somewhere, staying at a Motel 8, you know, because I have five hockey games on the weekend. Yeah. So, you know, so high school, you know, I had my spots, but they were very, you know, they were few and far between because of the commitment to hockey. And the commitment that to hockey, being, go, go ahead, go ahead. Well, that being said, Pete, like looking back on it, I can never ever remembering drinking just to have a drink. I, I never remember it. I always drank to get drunk and towards the end, actually, I mean, and, and a lot of the times blackout drunk. I view it, I viewed it as a solution too. I viewed it as a gift. I, my first spiritual experience was really the first time I can remember getting drunk and being able to do things that I was scared to do before. Uh, you know, I went yeah. to, I went to church as a kid and I, and I, had belief, but man, that first time I really got drunk, like in, you know, in high school, I was, or, you know, I was so excited just to go and do things dr drunk. Uh, and I was like, wow, I was like getting a new video game. Well, 
and you know what? For me, it wasn't. And and I'll be the first to admit it. Like we don't talk about it much, but our big book mentions it, and that's the whole you know s word, the girls, the sex. Like I was terrified of women. I was terrified of girls. Like I went to an all boys school. I was shy. I was sensitive. I was vulnerable. And alcohol took that away. And it allowed me to actually go up to a girl and say hello. Now, the problem was, you know, by the end, I didn't remember saying hello, you know. And, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it defe- you know, it defeated the purpose. But, you know, it really took the shyness away from me and, you know, gave me a sense of confidence that, and, and excitement, you know, in this rush. But, you know, it, and I've heard this before from a, another guy in the program. Pete, I was always looking for that just right feeling, you know, like maybe a little bit more will make me feel just right. And maybe just a little more, you know, maybe one more beer, maybe one more beer. And I never found that sweet spot. And I always, you know, unless, you know, you're in that spot where you're, you're really trying to monitor it. I always ended up, you know, in a blackout or doing something that I regretted. And the sweet spot, if you can find it lasts about a minute or two. And, and I was chasing it for the rest of my life. Uh, Oh God. Yeah. It's that euphoric. It's that you, I'd have that euphoric recall where you just think back to the way you felt and you're constantly like, let me get back here. And the, you know, that's the thing people struggle with when they get sober is if you get sober and you're not working a program or you're having a rough day, you can have that euphoric recall. And it's like, man, and then thinking about getting drunk, Sounds and looks good, and and it's you. You mentioned the thing with the girls too. Alcohol and drugs was the biggest lie uh, that was ever yeah. told to me because it told me that I needed it to be good at X, Y, or or Z. Did you ever take anything performance enhancing t- to play hockey? I did not, you know, and um, and it's interesting because you know I always say like I took a steroid when I was in fifth grade. And it was actually prednisone in order to help me with a bad, bad case of, of poison ivy. And I had such a bad reaction to it with, from it, it's actually what triggered my depression in fifth grade. And so, you know, any kind of chemical really into my body was a no, no. Like my mom wouldn't even let me take anti-inflammatories. I mean, I, I just was like, it was, that's why this whole thing for me was so bizarre. Again, my brother was, you know, and, and I say this, if my brother would be listening to this cause he's in recovery as well. My brother truly saved my life. And that's another part of my story, which, you know, I will let you know about, but you know, I, I just, you know, cocaine, I remember Lenny Bias, if you remember him, Pete, sure. like, I, you know, I literally thought you did cocaine, you died. Yeah. Like, unless you were some, you know, superhero, if you tried cocaine, you would die the next day. And so, you know, none of that stuff was my story. It was really just alcohol. And, you know, high school, it, it started to bubble. And then in college, Pete, like, you know, again, so focused on hockey and, and, you know, no other, like, that was my career. You know, it was like people go to school for, to be a doctor. People go to school to, you know, to be engineers or, or what have you. I went to college to get better at hockey and to eventually turn pro and move on. So, you know, when it comes to the drinking, 
you know, we practiced or worked out six days a week, you know, all school year. And on day seven, um, well, the night of <laughs> day six, I got blasted. And, and it was, you know, it was a just hamster wheel of six days of training as hard as you can. Day seven um, is, you know, nursing a hangover because on six, whenever the sport ended, I drank till I couldn't stop anymore. And, and that's how it went. But it also fooled me into thinking, well, I only drink once a week. I don't have a problem here, you know. And I'm hearing like almost a two-pronged attack coming from the chemical, you know, the, the alcoholism, the ism, the disease that that alcoholics have, that you have, that I have. That's uh, that's how I believe it. And also, you're you get drafted as a senior in high school. What is it like to go to college? And everybody knows that you went to Providence, and every I know you were around a, a very good hockey players, but I got to imagine there weren't the majority of, of them did not get drafted before going going to college. Was that did that follow you too? That pressure. Well, and here's the reverse pressure, um, Pete. So again, you know, and it's interesting because like I was a, a seventh round draft choice. You know, if we had thirty kids, ten were drafted. And seven of them were drafted higher than me. I didn't care about the other 23 people. They meant nothing to me. All I compared myself was to the seven people that were drafted ahead of me. And that, you know, it's like, you know, there's no, um, I guess there's no coincidence that a lot of athletes struggle with addiction after their career because, you know, they're so afraid of failure. You know, I was so afraid of someone being better than me that when that pressure, you know, when that is, you know, when you can let that go and the balloon pops, it pops big time. And so for me, I guess I came from like the standpoint, like I was coming from Philly, which at the time was not a huge hockey hotbed. I mean, we had Mike Richter, you know. And that was about it. You know, we had Oral Hershiser who played for actually the Little Flyers, but he turned into a baseball player. And, and so, you know, I, I didn't come out of, you know, I didn't come out of high school because, A, I was pretty young. I was 17. And I went, you know, when I got to college, there were, you know, I there were 20-year-old freshmen. So right from the get-go, I, I really did take the mindset of, I'm not as good as these kids, but I'm going to certainly work harder. And it's the same way I approached my alcohol. Like I may not be able to consume as much as you can, but I'm going to do it quicker and faster. And, you know, nothing's going to stop me from getting to where I want to get. And that's just was the cycle that was starting. It was just, you know, I'm going to do this bigger and better than anyone. I'm going to, you know, one beer is never going to be enough. I'm going to have, as many as I can have until I reach a high that was in, you know, insurmountable and I couldn't get to anyway. What was that like in college? Were there any consequences for, for of this drinking? Oh God. Yeah. And, and they started right off the, my, in my freshman year. Um, you know, when the season was going, um, you know, I, I kept it together pretty good, uh, pretty well, but you know, come, Come the spring, uh, my freshman year, 
I got a bottle broken over my head. I got 50 stitches in my face and my, you know, in the back of my head. Um, Just a bar fight? Two weeks. You know, I'd like to say it was a bar fight, but it was more me just, you know, getting clocked in the back of the head, you know, and, and actually in this particular case, like, I don't know, like, it, it was a after party of a, of a blind date ball, which for those of you who don't know, is like some, a, a girl or a guy, in this case, a girl sets their roommate up with um, a blind date. And so I was a girl's blind date. Went to a, this ball, you know, party or, you know, dance. Afterwards, you go back. We went to this hotel room, and I, like the alcoholic, was looking for the next adventure, wandered off into, you know, four random guys' room. One guy had been, you know, taking a good look at me the whole time, you know, eyeballing me, eyeballing me. And I'll never forget it. He, like, I was looking back at him. He was about, you know, maybe 15 feet away from me. I remember turning my head and next thing I know I'm getting hit over the head with a bottle and, you know, just smashed into my face. You know, again, did I do anything wrong per se? I don't remember, but I put myself in a situation to fail. You know, um, here I am. I, I, you know, I've got a beautiful date. I could be out with her hanging out, having a great time, but instead I would always choose the adventure that was never going to be what I thought. Yeah, you're, cha- you're, you're, you're chasing. You're chasing that adrenaline, like you mentioned. Uh, exactly. I'm, I'm searching for this next exciting thing because, you know, the one thing I used to love was tell those stories the next day. Oh, you remember when I did this? You remember when I did that? Until, you know, eventually, Pete, it got to where, like, I was so ashamed and embarrassed of those stories that I just stayed home drinking by myself. Did you have any, you know, what kind of relationship results did we have uh, in college? Did the alcohol affect your relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, as it was, you know, especially in college, Pete, like I was, you know, I was a hockey player. I was supposed to be the big man on campus, you know, and, um, and admittedly and embarrassingly, um, you know, I felt like, you know, a certain, you know, there should be a certain esteem that I should be held in, which was total BS. It's entitlement. At the end of the day, exactly. And people should look at me as if, well, you know, with that mentality, you feel like, you know, your girlfriend at the time should hold you at a certain light. So there was a ton of jealousy. You know, God forbid, you know, my girlfriend talked to another guy, you know, and embarrass me. And again, you know, looking back on it, it is so cookie cutter insecurity um, and, and so, you know, cookie cutter, like just weakness and, and false pride. But, you well, know, it's BS. It's the, BS. I mean, it, I did, I did the same is. thing. I mean, I, I, uh, if I were to date an, an attractive woman, I would feel like I'm not good enough for for to yep. be to be with this person in this relationship. So really, what I would do is I would take, I would take drugs. I would drink a lot of alcohol. I mean, I did this m- the whole time, and uh, you know, to make myself feel like I was on equal footing, and and you know, I tried to keep all the jealousy stuff in check, but it was burning me up inside. You know, like if I, if a girl if I was at a party and a girl started to talk to another guy, 
um, you know, and she was an attractive girl that was my girlfriend, I'd be like, wait, what's going on over there? It's like, dude, <laughs> and now, yeah. and now I'm sober and that doesn't happen. I mean, and if it does happen, I'm like, dude, what are you, what are you thinking of? Like, like, you know, you know, it's like, it's a whole different mentality, but I can totally relate to two things you said. One, the, the, the alcohol being a conduit to, to our relations, uh, relationships and relations. And two, the second yep. thing it's, you know, I was, I heard somebody say this recently, you give other people when you're an alcoholic and you're insecure, you, you provide them with superpowers. You basically like, like yep. whether you're, you're playing a sport, uh, you, the opposition, or you like a girl, the guy she's talking to, uh, you're, you're going to a job, the person you're, you know, working with. It's, it's crazy what we do to ourselves. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and you know, it's unfortunate, it, but like at one point, Pete, I'm proud of myself because out of the five serious girlfriends I've ever had, or out of the six serious girlfriends, and, and now obviously my wife, but five of them I still stay in touch with. And all of them, you know, had to deal with me in active alcoholism. And I like to think that, you know, hopefully I wasn't that bad of a guy throughout this whole thing, but I know I could have been better. And I know I, I definitely did a lot of damage and owed a lot of people some ninth step amends because, you know, it, it just, um, you know, I, I'm not proud of the way I acted when I was drinking. And, you know, it, it's, it's really, you know, of all the things that I went through in alcoholism. Um, and, and Pete, that's like the depression, the anxiety, the suicide attempt in 2011, everything. I think the things I'm most shameful of are the way I treated um, other women because, you know, I adore my wife and, you know, she has been absolutely my best friend, um, you know, just such a great, better half. And, you know, to think that like, I, you know, definitely would have squandered the opportunity to be with her um, when I was drinking is, is just, you know, it just makes me sad because that's not the person I know I am, but that's the person that I was during active alcoholism. And it sounds to me, uh, again, another Me Too deal. Like, you, you know, you talked about the hockey uh, you know, the, the hotel rooms, traveling with your mom and stuff like that. Sounds like you had a real good relationship with your mom. And so did I. So I, I really like, you know, I'm, I, I think women are the best. I hold them in a real high regard. And so there is a lot, there's some shame for me uh, that I still, you know, I, I have to let go that I still work through about, you know, the way that I treated women in relationships because I adore them. And uh, it's, yeah. it's, 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 so it's something we're constantly working through. I want to get you, you know, enough about me because this is, you're, you're, you're very compelling. So I keep jumping in. You're, you're at Providence. Are there consequences as far as the team is concerned, as far as the sport is concerned? You know, the, there are, uh, you know, luckily, Pete, there are no consequences other than the, like performance wise, other than, um, you know, looking back, I wonder, you know, if one day a week I had worked on my mental health or one day a week I'd actually done some homework or one day a week I had trained, you know, or one day a week I had, you know, worked on some relationships that maybe um, instead of one day a week drinking every, you know, drinking like a lush, I wonder how things may have turned out. 
but performance-wise, you know, I, I I hate to say it like this, but I was a beast. I just <laughs> I came to I came to college at an underage sixth, you know, recruit out of you know the sixth out of six recruits. So there were five guys in the freshman class that were recruited prior to me. And for people who and, don't know Providence, that's good hockey. Yeah, and, and better now that I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I only say that jokingly because my wife and I went up there, and Providence does have a good history. They they won the national championship about five, ten years ago. And um, But my wife and I laugh about it because, you know, we were up there watching a game, and it's got all the NCAA um, appearances on the wall. And, you know, it goes from, you know, 80, 83, 87, you know, boom, boom, boom. And there is a four-year gap, no joke, <laughs> no. from 91 to 95 when I went there. And it's the only four-year gap there is. And uh, she's like, when did you go there? And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm just, you know what? You can shut up right there, Pauline. And, you know, I bust her chops because she's a great athlete, probably better than I am. And um, she played lacrosse at um, – Oh gosh, um, Washington and Lee, okay. um, but Washington and Lee is a Division three school. So um, I'm always busting her chops, like, yeah, you know, you play D three, girl. You know, don't even start with me. And she goes, yeah, but I made it to the NCAs. You didn't. And <laughs> little big drop, D, I got nothing. <laughs> I and got it, nothing it sounds it. like a couple of athletes, and uh, you know that brings me back to, uh, or brings me to my next question. I was involved with football. Uh, you're involved yeah. with hockey. We're talking about people who are viewed as gladiators in the locker room, out of the locker room. And there's no back. There's really no mental health conversation back in the early nineties or even when I was, uh, you know, in, in the mid nineties in college and, and late nineties. Uh, what was that like for you? I mean, the, the hockey culture you hear is the guys get drunk, they throw up on their skates and they go play and they kick ass. Was that, was that what happened with you? I mean, and and go ahead and answer that first. It, you know what, Pete? Like it was one hundred percent my story. Um, I sit here talking to you without question, and you know, um, it can sound as egotistical as you as you make it, but talent was not my problem. Um, I signed a three year deal. Um, for a million dollars and I, you know, was on my way up to the big club The, you know, they had me projected as the fifth wing out of four, four make it, you know, the fifth, you know, needs some time to, you know, simmer. Um, it's Montreal Canadiens. Montreal. Yep. And I was the next guy up, you know, so if there's an injury, a trade, or I just start to develop a little bit more again, you know, I'm still young. Um, I was the next guy up. If talent was the problem, I, I would just admit, like, you know what? I just didn't make it. But, Pete, the problem was mental health. Um, I have, um, you know, and I've done a, a podcast on TBIs, which train, you know, traumatic brain injuries. I had my first concussion when I was um, five years old or in kindergarten, so approximately five years old, fell on a tree, hit my head, you know, went through the whole thing. And, um, by the time my career ended, I had seven diagnosed 
traumatic brain injuries, which you could, in my time, they were calling them um, trauma-induced migraine headaches. Okay. So, get you your know, bell rung. It, it, you get your bell rung, but what, and, and, you know, been to two, three neurologists, um, what they were seeing in, in something in my, you know, my scans made them think that I wasn't actually having concussions. I was having these trauma-induced migraine headaches. Either way, it was trauma to the brain. And um, I fully believe that that had a huge, huge effect on my career, but also on my alcoholism. We, you know, we talk about the genetic portion of it, but there's also a brain chemistry part, you know, where I'm just wired different. And, you know, then you go on to the mentality and you know it just as well, Pete, like, you know, we are warriors. You look at the hockey guys during the playoffs with the cuts and the, you know, and the beards, like there's just like, there's no way we're sitting out. I mean, I, you know, it took me a day and a half to go to the hospital because I had, um, you know, two fractures in my jaw and wouldn't go to a doctor, thought I could sleep it off, you know, things like that. You just don't talk about you don't do but again Pete like I can't remember a time where I didn't come to the rink scared to death because I was terrified I was going to get hurt again you know um my um and, and you know your listeners will probably miss this but do you remember Dr. Emperor no Dr. Emperor no okay well he I only mentioned because he was my orthopedic doctor okay and he has a file the size of the big book on me it's just you know from two shattered collarbones to a broken scapula broken wrist broken jaw twice you know the concussions it's just you know but you keep going because again you feel like that's what you're supposed to do when in reality you know Pete, i just didn't want to get hurt anymore yeah so as as any true you know knucklehead um if you don't want to get hurt what do you do? You play harder so that you get hurt more because you don't want anyone to know you're afraid. And and the so, fear, you know, you're, if you're at all like me and you are, cause you're an alcoholic, I would guess that, that yeah. the fear, there's nowhere else to go with that, but more alcohol. The all new Chevy Colorado is made for more stacked with the latest in vehicle technologies, like a class leading 11 inch diagonal center touchscreen and an extra large wireless charging pad. Plus, it features wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility to make staying connected easy wherever your adventure takes you. Chevy Colorado, made for more. Learn more at Chevrolet.com slash truck slash Colorado. Claims based on latest competitive data. Exactly. And you find yourself running into walls just to let people know you're not scared when in reality you're terrified. And the only time you're not scared is when you're drinking because then you don't have to worry what other people think anymore. So you're, you're, you're at Providence. Uh, this thing is obviously really starting to take control. You mentioned when you said, uh, you know, being fifth in the rotation or six, fifth or six, I forget with the big club, was that during college or that's after that's right after. So, yeah, that's after. So the way it went down and, and I laughed because I was having this conversation um, with someone today, just about, you know, um, and I, oh, just about like the maturity level and what we tell our kids now, you know, as a coach and as an athletic director, you know, I had signed in March of 91 
And I'll never forget my agent guy, Steve Mountain. You may know oh, him sure. from yeah. the area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. So Steve was my agent, and he calls. He says, Brady, you know, I'm in college. He says, Brady, you know, you're you're in. You know, they you've got we got exactly what we wanted, three years, da-da-da, this and that. He said, all you have to do is get yourself an airline ticket, you know, head up to Montreal, and you'll be in, you know, the Meyer League lineup the next night because they were actually doing like a showcase at the, at the forum. So the minor league team would be there so, you know, all their fans could see the prospects. Yeah. And I called my mom, no joke, 21 years old, here's the tough hockey player, in tears. Because, Pete, I have no idea how to get a plane ticket. I have no idea. And I think this is like some foreign, like, you know, who gets plane tickets? Because I've been coddled all my life. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just don't know how to be a grown-up. I have no idea how to be a grown-up. So I get to Montreal, and, you know, here, now I'm here, and, you know, I'm supposed to be enjoying my you know, my spring of my senior year in college, going to keg parties, you know, raging. Meanwhile, you know, my first game in Montreal, I get my face beat in by, you know, the other team's enforcer. And who was who, like, who the enforcer? Will we know? So the guy's name is Doug Friedman. And you know what? Like, Dougie was just doing his job. We played BU, and he was sticking me all game. He played at Boston University. Yeah. And you, so know, you knew this guy. I did. I knew him. And I'll never forget because like, I remember like I'm in college. He's a He was a year ahead of me. So he's already turned pro. And one of the guys on my team looks at his stats. It's like, Oh, you know, Friedman doesn't even have that many penalty minutes. Like, you know, he's not as tough as we thought he was. I know that plays into my mind when I drop the gloves with him. Well, Turns out the guy must have been injured or something because, you know, he had plenty of penalty minutes. And so you'll love this one because, you know, for those of you from the Philadelphia area, they know Donald Brashear, right? Sure. So Donald is on my team in Fredericton, and he, um, he got kicked out of the game earlier. I just get kicked out of the game. He looks a lot better than I do because he won his fight. I did not win mine. And he looks over at me, and he says, Brady, that is not your job here. And I look at him, Pete, and I'm like, thanks for telling me now. <laughs> but that was it. Like, you know, I'm a young college kid. I just had taken the mask off for the first time because, you know, in college we wear a full mask, you know, and I'd never fought. But, like, I didn't want anyone to know I was afraid. So I fought, which... Again, like, you know, if you were looking at me now, picture a Cabbage Patch doll with his hands <laughs> wide open, and that's how I went into my first fight. I mean, you know, it must have looked like a balloon when he punched me in the face because I wasn't protecting myself because I didn't know how, you know? And then, you know, Donald right after that says, you know, hey, Brady, you don't have to do that. Like, you're not here to fight. You're here to, you know, to score or to kill penalties or whatever, but I'm here to fight. But, like, that, like, God forbid, you know, anyone think that I was weak or scared. And in hockey, you know, there's you, you either have to, you know, eat crow, which I wasn't doing, or fight, which I didn't know how to do. <laughs> so I was kind of between a rock and a hard place. And, um, and you know, Pete, right after that first game, um, I suffered through 17 more. Um, and, and 
I had good games. I was, but I was just so anxious, so depressed. Um, were you I, drinking uh, you know, when you when a, you were going through this this uh, minor league experience? You know, and here's the thing, I wasn't Pete. Like I, when I'm my drinking, and again, this is like I almost feel like I have to fast forward to how it all like ended with me. Like I did not. Like I never drank when I was anxious or depressed because I knew it wouldn't make me feel better. And I was too, you know, I was too anxious and depressed to drink. But what I would do is I would drink. So I never got anxious and depressed, you know, Mm -hmm. but when the sports was still in play and and again, my alcoholism really took shape probably mid twenties, you know, that's when I was off to the races because once you take the hockey out, you know, now there's no reason for me to stay sober. So 18, you know? eight, eight, um, 18 you, you play 18 games. And I play 18 games. And then you, you, and you decide, I can't go through this anymore, and, and you, you quit. So, and again, foreshadowing. So I, 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 um, I, I play the regular season out. You know, they had six regular season games because I met them towards the end of the season because I had been in college. Gotcha. So I left college early. Played um, 12 playoff games because they just wouldn't lose, Pete. Like, we went to the Calder Cup finals. We ended up, like, I mean, here I am, like, you know, they keep putting me in the lineup, and I want to be like, please, don't put me in the lineup. I'm terrified out here, (laughs) you know? But I I was playing well, you know? And, and, you know, I had, like, a three-point game. I was the second star, and I never forget, like, you know, I'm leaving the game, and my mom's like, you know, hey, great game. I'm like, Mom, I am miserable. And if you haven't caught on, I am a total mama's boy. Like, I mean, my mom moved up to Fredericton, New Brunswick, you know, while I was there because, you know, I was just so miserable. And um, so, you know, the season ends, spend the summer, go back to training camp. We played two rookie games against the Ottawa Senators. And these are like, I've heard Gettysburg was a pretty significant battle in the civil war. <laughs> these, Pete, these made Gettysburg look mild. I mean, there are 15 fights. I get cut over the eye. They hot glue it shut. Like, I, I mean, they push you right back out there. I mean, this is like, you know, all the rookies trying to prove that they're tough enough to get to the next level. And my dad is up at St. Lawrence. Cause that's where the exhibition game was. I leave. He sees me after the game. And he says, how you doing, Braves? I go, Dad, I have to have my head effing examined to even want to do this. And, you know, again, hang in there. Well, that was the end. I, um, we had the next day off. And as you know, my, as I've said, my drinking, you know, um, my drinking trend was to drink when I had the next day off. And I went out on St. Catherine Street in Montreal and got, and you know what? It, it involved a girl, I remember, too. I was talking to a girl and ended up getting drunk enough that she probably realized I don't want to be with this drunk fool. Ended up walking back to the hotel by myself and woke up the next morning in Providence, Rhode Island, where my parents were because I'd flown home um, because that's the only way, Pete, I could get the courage to leave. And, um, and you know, and that was kind of another looking back, Pete, another example of like, wow, like 
there was another sign of my alcoholism that I just missed. And please, just to qualify, like, you know, I became a daily drinker. I, be, I was always a blackout drinker. You know, I, um, you know, had, you know, I, I drank um, on August 29th, 2011. I woke up that morning anxious, depressed, but no thought of ending my life, just miserable. And by August 30th, 2011, I woke up in a hospital having just tried to kill myself. So we're gonna, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to keep here all day, but I just want to kind of because I kind of want to want to want to move through. So you get done, yep. you get done hockey. You, you kind of you work in the travel industry. Your drinking is picking up. It's ramping up. It's ramping up. And now we get to August of 2011. And what what yep. what happens? August of 2011. Um, you know, I tried to quit Pete several times. In 08, I tried to quit um, because I was too sick to drink. In um, in 10, I was mentally sick and um, Penn you Hospital. Know, tried to quit. But what's that? Uh, at Penn Hospital, you ended up. No. You said at Penn? Um, no, I was just, I just said in 2010. Oh, I sorry. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. So anyway, you know, fast forward, like I said, went through this anxiety, this depression, stopped drinking, wasn't getting better. And then, um, you know, August 29th, I coming home from work, I thought it would be a great idea to grab an 18 pack of Bud Light. And, um, as you know, like alcohol changes the mind and, um, you know, I had been trending, you know, really bad for three months without alcohol. But as you know, without any support system, without any, um, you know, program, you're just a dry drunk. And I did not know that. And, um, so you tried to stop for a while. And then you said, "Hey, let yep. me let me just get an eighteen pack and see how this works out." Correct. Yeah. Because I can you know, relate. I didn't think alcohol. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I just didn't know. Like I didn't know that I had alcoholism. I, I just I knew I drank too much. An alcoholic looked like a brown paper bag guy who lived in a gutter that had DUIs, that had jail time, that had this, and those were all my yes, as you know. Yeah, I haven't done this yet. I this hasn't happened yet. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. one, yep. you drink that day, or you get that eighteen pack, and then how do you end up almost taking your life? So, uh, get home from school, which was my pattern in the past. You know, um, get home three o'clock, four o'clock. You uh, you know, you drink to get drunk, and then you pass out, and you go back the next day. Well, you know, I, ne- I just never forget at six o'clock. And you're you know, working. You're I, working um, at a school. I'm working at a school, okay. yep, had a dream job, again, dream job, like PE teacher out in San Diego, California, um, no kidding. you know, PE, yep, PE teacher, athletic director, loving it, um, but the depression, the anxiety are just, you know, I was having a bad batch, like Bill Wilson, you know, yeah. and yeah, I get home, and um, after about 12, 14 beers, like, I, I'll never forget, I remember thinking of Oscar De La Hoya. And Oscar De La Hoya, I believe, either suffers from alcoholism. Yeah, he does. He definitely suffers. Yep, definitely suffers from depression and anxiety. And I remember him saying in an interview, like, "I'm just not, you know, I'm, you know, not being tough enough to take his own life." And I thought, "Well, I'm tough enough." And um, what a just moronic thought, by the way, for anybody out there on that, you know, 
on that plane. But the reality is, Pete, like I, um, I had some sleeping pills or, or, you know, like Valium type pills. Um, and, and it was amateur night. I wasn't trying to kill myself. I just, it was my cry for help. And I, I think I probably had 10 pills. I tried to, you know, swallow those or I swallowed those and then, you know, had like a steak knife and tried to cut my wrists. And, and the bottom line was like, you know, it, it, it was, it was amateur night. And I, I, I don't, I don't remember anything else other than laying down in the tub, praying that I wasn't going to wake up um, because I was so miserable. But then the next morning waking up in a hospital with a nurse, you know, watching over me because my parents back East had paid for a nurse to take care of me because they didn't want me to wake up by myself. And then, and then what happens? I mean, how do we get, how do we get sober? How do we, how do we, yeah, obviously I'm guessing this is the jumping off point. This is the, this is my rock bottom. You know, I do my 72 hours and I, I'm, I'm assuming we're pretty touched on time here, but no, we're good. We're good. I mean, you got, you you got time. We got like in our 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. So don't rush, but I I don't want to keep, I don't want to keep you all day long either. You got a wife. I I love talking about this stuff, man, because as you know, it helps us get better. But you know, I do my mandatory 72 hold because you know, I've just taken, you know, the Baker act, which again, Pete, we could do a whole podcast on that. Um, I mean, you know, I ended up on my last day there, you know, I ended up uh, leaving. There's a big metal door and, you know, I'd made friends with a couple of these people. So you basically end up even... uh, in, in, after you try to take your own life in like a mental a hospital. For some, yeah. In, for in the, yeah. the loony bin, you know, I, okay. I mean, I'm there. I am with, um, you know, I'm with people that are, you know, this is a state run public, you know, mental facility. And, you know, it is not a great place. Um, you know, I've got one guy that, you know, asked me if I wanted to break free with him. And on the last day, and on the last day, um, you know, and, and you're talking like no shoelaces, you know, people like standing on the wall, like kind of, you know, doing the head nod thing because they're so out of it. And on the last day, you know, after my 72 hours, the door opens, I go to leave and somebody tries to make a break for it. <laughs> and, and I kick him in the chest to keep him from leaving because <laughs> the nurse was so small. And uh, the door closes behind me. And Pete, I wish I could say it got better then, but that's when it started. You know, it, it, it like, I wish it, I could say that, like, everything just became roses then. I'm still, this is August of 2011. I'm still a good five months before my first AA meeting. But you stay and, sober for that, um, for that five months. I, I, I do. I, I'm, I'm, and as you know, and for those of you, you know, who are alcoholics know, I was dry. Yeah, bro. You know, I, was, I, I, I go five days without, without a meeting and, and I get, you know, I get, I get Rammy. I, and, uh, for, yeah. For sure. Now, how do you get to that first meeting? So, and this is, this is where God came in for me. Um, so I'd been to see a spiritual guru. I'd been to McLean mental hospital. They wanted to give me the, you know, the, the ECT, you know what I mean? The paddles to like, you know, reset your brain or whatever. Like the, you're trying you everything know, else, but AA or recovery to stop drinking. 
Exactly. Because you know what, Pete? In my mind, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people that need to stop drinking. And I don't need to stop drinking. I've stopped. And I don't want to stop drinking anymore. But emotionally, I am broken. Like, I am now, I would never try to commit suicide again because I know the damage it's done. But for four months, I'm putting my head on a pillow praying that I don't wake up in the morning. Just praying. And one morning, um, I had been up all night, which had been my pattern. And I'm staying with my parents in Rhode Island. My brother, who incidentally is two weeks out of Cranston Federal Penitentiary, for, um, which is prison, for those of you who do not know, is staying in the same house as I am. And I could have walked straight down the hall, knocked on my parents' door, and said, Mom, Dad, um, I can't do it. You know, help, help, help. But that hadn't been working. So I knocked on my brother's door. And again, you know, as you can paint the picture, this, you know, he's had his struggles. Um, but I didn't have anywhere else to turn. Nothing was working. And I knock on his door and, and I call him Griggs and I said, Griggs, um, I, I just can't do this anymore, man. Like I'm, I'm done. And he said, that's it. We're going to an AA meeting. Huh. And I said, <laughs> and I said, buddy, like I don't even drink anymore. Why would I go? He said, maybe there's a little something more going on there than stopping drinking. And Pete, that was it. Like that, I went to a meeting <clears throat> that morning. It was a 6.30 meeting. He promised me I wouldn't have to share. Um, it was a daily reflections meeting where everybody shares. So <laughs> I had to share. And I heard this afternoon the other day, and it's the only thing I can explain of why I've kept coming back, and it's hope. Hearing other people's experiences. That's what's kept me coming back. Um, the second I got in those rooms, I, I had no idea what alcoholism was. I had no idea how being an alcoholic could save my life. But I had hope. I, there was something in those rooms that, like, whatever these people were saying, that, as you know, in those first days, like, of meetings, you know, like, in mine is like I was surprised they were talking about God so much. That's how little I knew about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a magical but deal old, that there's a there's it, a it, it, just similar to you. There's a there's a woman. There's a group I go to here in Texas, and there's a woman who hadn't drank for two years, and her sister uh, has a relationship with AA, or her sister was sober for a little bit, and her, she told her sister, "Hey, I'm really struggling. You know, I'm jammed," and her sister said, Hey, you should go to AA. And this, this woman now has been coming to meetings and she's like, she's loving it because there is that hope yeah. in the room. Uh, and I, gosh, I, I, I hope people who, you know, who stop drinking can just can, can also stop the, the, the mental fight. Right. And just, and just walk into a meeting for me, that's what worked at least. That's, that's my experience to, to live. Cause Brady man talking to you, you seem like a happy dude. And I talked to, you know, somebody close to you and, and they talked about, just your message and, and, and the light that comes off you. And it's great to hear you talk about the depression the five months after because I know that this this light coming off you is a result of your, your work in recovery. It, you know, and <clears throat> Pete, like, and, and I say this, like, I, I wish almost we were on, you know, 
on a zoom or, or like I was on your, you know, your show or, or whatever, because I, I just, so you could see the sincerity in my life in my eyes, like Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. Like it has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams and, and, and get every day is not a winner. You know, yeah. like I, I still suffer from depression. I still suffer from anxiety. I still get jammed up all the time, but you know what? Like I don't live in that state of mind. Like it, it comes, it goes. I have hundreds of resources of how to get out of that. Like, you know, I call another person. I do a podcast with you. Like I, you know, I talk to, you know, like my wife, like I do a gratitude list, like you name it. Like there are so many ways. Whereas like, I felt like I was broken and there was no way to fix me. And you know, the only thing I feel bad about with AA is like people that aren't, you know, that don't drink too much don't qualify and they don't get what we get, you know, because Alcoholics Anonymous for me, my Alcoholics Anonymous would work for every individual on the face of the earth because it's a program of just doing the right thing for people, being in service and, and just like, you know, living life. And I, I just, like I said, it's like, it sounds cultish, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's just really, really, you know, it's been the manual that I was missing. You know, I knew how to shoot a slap shot. I knew how to do a breakout. You know, um, I knew how to run the trap, but I didn't know how to live life. Like I didn't know how to make an airline ticket, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's a blueprint, AA it's a blueprint for life. It, it really is. It, it really is. And, and you know, to, to, to speak to what you're saying, and I want to ask you a couple more questions, you know, those, the 12 steps are used in all kinds of, of, of different ways to help people that are struggling with all kinds of, of different addictions. And it's not like I'm laying claim to it or, you know, cause I don't represent yep. AA. I'm just a guy who, who like you, it saved my life, but they started with AA. I mean, that's, that's, yep. that's, that's where you get the 12 steps. Now, I want to backtrack. Was there any drugs involved? Like, were you, was there any, you mentioned that as a kid, you were turned off and, and you kind of had the sports mentality, no drugs. Nancy Reagan scared the shit out of me too, by the way. But yep. and <laughs> really, really, it didn't. It, wor it, it worked until you start to take drugs and then you think you're a terrible person. Uh, yeah. So what, what did, any drug scene for you? Yeah, not, not much. I mean, you know, I lived out in California, so I did smoke some marijuana. Uh -huh. Like, you know, um, I, I can count, like, I think I've, I don't even think I ever bought marijuana. I had been given marijuana before, you know, like, yes, like did ecstasy once or twice, but again, Pete, like so drunk that I don't even know that, you know, ecstasy was even capable of working with all the alcohol <laughs> I had been drinking, you know? Yeah. So, you know, but never cocaine, you know, no heroin, none of that stuff, just only because like, you know, that was the big boys for me. And, and again, like that's just my personal story. Like I, you know, I knew Pete, like if I had been doing cocaine, we're probably not having this conversation because I don't know that I could have survived a cocaine addiction, not the way I'm wired. You know, um, it, it just, I know I would have liked it too much. And again, you know, terrified of like dying. Like, I don't want to die, Pete. Like I really don't want to die. And, 
again, my role model was my brother who didn't seem to be doing too well with cocaine and Lenny bias, who again, like he died, like to me, like he took it one night and died the next. Yeah. So that's like, you know, that's the image I have of drugs and, and, you know, and like the fear of like, and marijuana made me paranoid. Like, I, you yeah. know, I, if I ever smoked marijuana, like I had to be in like a really controlled setting, watching Ren and Stimpy, eating Doritos, <laughs> you know, like the whole, you know, it had to be just this perfect environment. You mentioned, you know, us not having this conversation, you know, and, and there are other ways too. I, talking to you now, I get this jolt. It's like, you know, we're both, in the, I get reminded, we're both in the bonus round of life. You know, mo- most people don't get a seat uh, in the rooms of recovery just because they don't. Most people just don't get here, you know, and luckily the the ball bounced or the puck bounced our way. And, and now yeah. here I am talking to you. How did your life change? When and you know this is all. The, by the way, by the grace of God, I'm talking to you. It's not like I had any yep. game plan. You know, like literally, no. I fell ass backwards into a great way of life. How did your How did your life start to change when you embraced recovery and and you and you and you had a taste of that hope? You know, it's interesting because like I always felt like like um, the Bronx Tale. You remember Chaz um, yeah. Pomentary or whatever his name is in Bronx Tale? He says, you know, the biggest disappointment in life is, you know, um, wasted, talent. wasted talent, you know? And, and I felt like that guy. Like, I felt like, you know, I have all the potential in the world. Like, I feel like I could be the president of the United States if I wasn't so depressed, if I wasn't so anxious. You know, again, all symptoms of my alcoholism. Um but like, I'm not built that way. Like I, I can't overcome it. Like there's too much fear as we know through our four step. There's so much fear now, like the biggest benefit of Alcoholics Anonymous has been like, I get scared. I'm fearful, but like it doesn't last. And I know there's nothing I can't complete. Like I know that if I want to be, you know, a government official, I can be a government official. Like if I want to be an athletic director at Archbishop Carroll, I can be the athletic director at Archbishop Carroll. And, and that was a big turning point for me, Pete, because like that was like the first big boy job I had in recovery. And, you know, other than that, like I thought I was destined to like, you know, and, and you know, no, like, Hey, lots of people have great careers as Bellman, but like, that's all I could think of that I could actually do. It's like carrying people's luggage and talking to them, like nothing that would ever stress me out. And now like I have a way to deal with life on life's terms. And so that's like, was the first, you know, inklings of like, wow, I have, you know, I'm not scared of trying things anymore. Yeah, I know. And you try and you, you kind of go through you. It's all about repetition, building up reps and, and walking, you know, I walk through so many doors in the wrong direction, uh, through alcohol yep. and drugs. Uh, and you walk through those doors and you can keep, just keep walking, right? It's like your lows get lower on the other side of that in recovery, you keep walking through doors and it's like you walk through that fear and Oh man, this feels good. I'm on the other side of all that fear and win, lose or draw. I did it. So I feel this gust of esteem and I didn't have yes. that before. Cause I would just get, get drunk. Now, what do you, you, you yep. talk, you talk to, you know, kids. Uh, I know you do a lot of talking today <laughs> about recovery. I love, 
I love your message, dude, of just, you know, you're, you're about breaking the stigma of mental health, alcoholism. What do you tell, what do you tell the young people? Uh, or what do you just tell crowds about, about sobriety, the folks you talk to? Well, and it's, it's interesting um, because it's like, it's a combined message, you know, like sobriety to me starts again, it encompasses mental health. Like, you know, there, the big book talks about, you know, there's the depressive type that like most of us, you know, that people don't understand or, or whatever it may be. So, you know, my sobriety, it, it just, it encompasses like the mental health aspect of like, you know, depression is such an amazing foe because depression tells you it's not okay to not be okay. You know, it, it just, and so for me, like my sobriety encompasses that mental health, you know, topic. So, you know, what I tell these kids is like, you know, everything I've learned in AA, but towards the mental health aspect, like, you know, if you're, you know, and I, and I guess my biggest message is like, please, please ask for help. You know, please come out there. Like you would be shocked that like how many people will say me too. You know, as you and I have said on this podcast, like me too. And that's where like the connection comes. Sobriety is about connection. Like I needed to know that like people like you that I respect and people like, you know, some pro athletes that like I know that are in recovery. Like I needed to know that I'm not the only one that is terrified that you'll know that, hey, I'm pretty sensitive, Pete. Like I, I get my feelings hurt a lot. You know, for a guy that like led his team in penalty minutes all four years at Providence and wasn't, you know, and, you know, can't say I wasn't afraid, but. Yeah, nobody saw you as a soft guy. Exactly. Like, you know, you can hurt my feelings by just looking at me the wrong way. Yeah. And now I'm not afraid to admit that. That's like, so, you know, my message to these kids, and it's just, it's been such a gift, man. Like, I wish you could come to one of my classes. Like, these kids, like, I may have mentioned this already, but like, you know, when I talk about my, I'm teaching health right now with a nurse and, you know, we talk about alcohol and and addiction and, and that kind of stuff. And you could hear a pin drop when I am telling them my story because like, you know, I'm not like beating around the bush with them. I, I, you know, I know they're going to drink at some point. Like I, I know it. And I'm, and I'm not telling them not to drink Pete. I'm just telling them that, listen, like, here's what happened to me. You know, this is my experience with drinking. Here are some of the signs. Like I've never had a drink where I didn't drink to get drunk ever, ever. So, you know, if you're, you know, in ninth grade or whatever it may be, when you start drinking and you get blackout drunk, your first drink, you may want (laughs) to take a hard look at the way your alcohol career is going to turn out. Yeah, know? I woke up with the, uh, you know, the markers all over me. Uh, is one of those, one of those exactly. deals. Yeah. <laughs> and I, the, mean, I was a human whiteboard. Yeah, totally. One, one thing you said, and I, and it's, it's to each his own, right? I mean, if you want to keep your recovery, yep. it's called Alcoholics Anonymous, of course. Or, or, yep. or, or even if yep. you're sober, and that's not the way you got it done. But I really appreciate people. Uh, you know, breaking the stigma and sharing the message. I one of the, there's so many. I 
kind of dropped in on recovery for so long. I read books about it. I and and I I couldn't stop drinking. And I was watching this Dennis Eckersley Sports Century Classic. He's you know the old ESPN show, and, and Eckersley is sober. Yep. And he talked about when he was so drunk one Christmas that his uh, daughter videotaped him being completely wasted, and he watched it. And this is like 1984. I think he was playing for the Cubs at the time, and he got sober from that point forward. And yep. and the guy was like somebody I wanted to be. Like I remember watching this and and, and crying and being like, I can't get yeah. there. Uh, but yep. you know, thinking to myself, like I want I want to have that. And now I'm not Dennis Eckersley, but I'm not drunk. Uh, and it's right. uh, and it's, it's and that, that helped. And me. I always, yep. And I always say like I came into Alcoholics Anonymous backwards. Like I'd already stopped drinking and then I needed to realize like that alcohol had been my solution, not my problem. You know, like all my problems were these fears and these anxieties and these, you know, feeling less than, and the solution had been my alcohol, you know, but it took me, you know, a, a, a couple of years to figure that out. And, you know, once I finally like figured out what was going on in these rooms, and that it wasn't just about stopping drinking, like then I could connect the dots and say like, Hey, you know, Brady, you did spend the better part of two years drinking every single day, you know, but you know, Pete, like I never drank at work. So that didn't make me an alcoholic mm -hmm. again yet. Like it, it's like, it's incredible. Like how many times you hear parts of or all of your story. And, and then like, yeah, like I'm, you know, I get a little timid, about like sharing my story with these kids because I don't want to ever romanticize. And, and I really do stay away from the whole suicide thing. Cause I, you know what? Like, I don't want to even like, I'm not trained to talk about that with these yeah, kids, me neither, yeah. but I, I, you know what I mean? But like, I do want to say like, Hey, I had suicidal thoughts, you know? And I want to say like, Hey, like you're going to find out that like, probably if you dig deep enough and, and hear my messages on the internet that I had a suicide attempt, but like, you know, at the end of the day, like I, I do get timid about like, there is still a stigma and I don't want like, you know, I'm very careful with kids that like, I want them to know they're in a safe place and I want their parents to know they're in a safe place. And, you know, there's still that stigma in my mind that like, if they think, you know, I'm an alcoholic, they'll equate me to something else. And I can tell you this to this day, Pete. Like, and I've been teaching now sober for, you know, five, five years now sober. Cause I was doing the event stuff and everything else. I haven't had alcoholic alcoholism come back to bite me once. Yeah. No one being has honest come and being to me open. And said, exactly. And if they do shame on them, you know, it's like, Hey, like, you know, it's probably, I've usually figured out, like if somebody has a problem with my alcoholism, there may be a little bit more that they're dealing with under the rug that, you know, I'll let them figure out, but you know, it, it's been a great message. It's been, um, it's been a way for me actually to relate to these kids because, you know, especially in this pandemic, man, they, the mental health crisis is real and these kids are suffering and um, whatever hope or levity I can give them, then I know you know, the 20 years, the suicide attempt, the ruined, you know, not ruined, but the, you know, the career that didn't go the way I went, the broken bottle over my head. It was all worth it, man. Yeah. It was all worth it. If I can help one of these kids 
just to ask me for help when they need it, you know, then I've done my job. Or, or to ask somebody else uh, because you, exactly. because they, they talk to you. So we're going to wrap up, uh, but any anything else? I mean, dude, this has been unbelievable, and I could hold you hostage for, for uh, half a day. But a- anything else you want to tell people about recovery? Uh, and then, you know, just anything else? And then lastly, I'll ask people where they can find you and, and what you're doing. Yeah, no, I, I, I guess really, Pete, I just want to thank you. I mean, there is nothing, and whenever I chair or speak at a meeting, I, I, I usually start it by just saying there is nothing that gives me more pride and more excitement than sharing at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or sharing my story, you know, with someone because like it it just makes me feel good. It's a rush. It's like, I I love it because I know where I was and I know where I've been and where I'm going. And, and like at the end of the day, like it all, like the dots have connected. So thank you so much for letting me be on your, on your show. Yeah, dude. Thank you. I mean, really, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Any place, any platforms you have that you want to, I mean, obviously we, we, we talked about the fact that I don't think, did you have, a, I listened to a podcast about you before. Did you, do you have a foundation or anything or there was something before? Yeah, I you know, no, I, I kind of went when I got, it's funny when I got, I have nothing really, you okay. know, obviously like um, I have a Facebook page, um, you know, profile, like if anyone ever wanted to reach out Brady Kramer, you know, it's, um, it's, you know, my Facebook page, um, just to talk recovery, you know, anything, yeah. um, I'm always open, you know, like, and, um, obviously would love to speak whenever I can. I'm always available to talk the message to someone else. All right. Well, send me a, uh, uh text me a beautiful headshot of yours and then, uh, any, any maybe a hockey picture or two. Uh, so we can promote this, it. and I want people to hear your message, man. Hey, Pete, like seriously, man. And if you get to the area again, or oh, dude, I'm gonna whatever, hit you up. Like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll be in I, touch. I would love it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I, I appreciate awesome. your time, dude. You bet. Thanks, man. All right, thanks, Brady. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 